0: Welcome to Coffeehouse. We have a new book today. Now, I was traveling recently, and when I'm traveling, I always read some novel. In this particular instance, uh, it was a road trip, so I usually read On the Road by Jack Kerouac. That's original, of course, but I didn't have it with me, so I picked up another one. And this one was, And the Hippos Were Boiled in Their Tanks. And it was written by Jack Kerouac and William S. Burroughs. It was written in 1945, but it was not published until 2008. Now, neither author, for the duration of this 50-some-odd years, thought that it should have been published. They actually thought that it wasn't to a literary caliber that it should have been unleashed upon the world. And this was before, long before, they actually wrote their breakout works. So, with William S. Burroughs, Nick Lunch, and Jack Kerouac on the road. But this particular book, it was a chronicle of the loose events that led up to the murder of one of their friends by another one of their friends. This was something that happened in real life. And it would kind of wend its way into a number of the beat generation authors, but would stay hidden, you know, locked away somewhere for a long time until it was eventually published. So I liked the title. (laughs) I thought that was a great title. So I figured I would give it a read and see how, how it functioned and what was going on here. As always, we will go through the contents, then do a little analysis where we talk about the kind of virtues and vices of the book, and then we'll do a big picture thing here. I am actually going to have a new book coming out next month, that's November, that is going to be another collection of critiques of various amateur writing so uh it's just jokes and vastly overcritical observations about writing and i would greatly appreciate it. anybody who wants to look check that one out but for our purposes here we are moving on to the contents and the hippos were boiled in their tanks <laughs> So what's the setup? The setup is that it's about these characters, and these characters are actually reference to real-world people that are in these two writers' lives. These are writers that spent a lot of time together, and the way they wrote this was that they had the same characters in the group, but Burroughs represented one of the characters. He was Will Dennison in the book, and Kerouac was another character, Mike Ryko. Which I like that name. It makes me think of, what's his name? Was it Casper Van Dien or some other person in that one movie? The only good bug is a dead bug? Why can't I remember this movie? Anyway, uh, that's what it makes me think of. Mike Rico. Uh, I don't remember. Oh, I think the guy's name was Rico. Is that why? Anyway, so they represent these different characters. And they write from the perspective of those different characters. But it's part of the same group. And they will alternate chapters, so one will write one chapter, and one will write the next chapter. And then there are other characters, significant characters, as Philip Turian and Ramsey Allen. Phil is this good-looking guy who's part of the group, and Al is gay, and he's perpetually chasing Phil. And then they have people who are representative like, women who are in the group, and their girlfriends, and some other guys they run into. But we start with Burroughs, Burroughs writes the first chapter, and it's beat generation, so it's not sci-fi or political intrigue, it's a bunch of hippies (laughs) getting high, getting drunk, having sex, and talking flippantly about philosophy. You know, they go to bars, they try to get jobs, they drink and do drugs, they meet girls, they meet new people, they have run-ins with police, they do some traveling. But the title, and this is something uh, one can think of and wonder about, but the title apparently came from a radio broadcast. Uh, Burroughs, I think, said it was from a radio broadcast about a circus fire, so they heard that somebody say, like, exclaim, and the hippos were boiled in their tanks, so that's where he pulled that, and I can totally see that, it's a, it's a cool phrase, but I think Kerouac actually said that it came from a fire that happened at the London Zoo, so it wasn't a circus fire, but it was, it was from the London Zoo, but they heard a broadcast about that. And then the the ultimate publisher who got the rights to it, who spent a lot of time with both of them, ultimately said it was unconfirmed where it actually came from, so, so where the title actually came from. But you could stretch, I was wondering thematically what it actually meant, the title, and you could stretch it a bit when we get into kind of the character and the culture around it, you could stretch it a bit to try to make it fit, but I'm not sure if it was just something that they heard that sounded cool, so that's why they threw it in there. But the actual story, it's about, you know, friends and family of this group, their real-life counterparts, and the kinds of things that they would get into in real life just chronicled in this deal. Like, there was, a, there was one incident, and this is something that I think culturally is something that you see in other Kerouac's writings and characterizes kind of the B generation. Because you'd have one character who talks about something that seems like it's supposed to be some profound philosophy, that he's coming up with. So you consider it for a moment, and the the main character would consider it for a moment, but then kind of poke holes in it and uh, challenge it a little bit, and it would fall apart. And so you wonder thematically whether that is important. That's specifically what it's about, and you'll you'll see later when we really go into it. But these aren't the world beaters and heroes that you see in other stories, you know, it's not the Odyssey, it's not (laughs) something that's about important people doing important things in the traditional definition of that. For the beat writers, it was a different kind of protagonist. They rejected the conventional stories, and it was the point to reject the conventional stories, and reject the kinds of restrictions that society had at the time, and this is right into the post-war era, so it's, it's a counterculture to that. It's this kind of cultural malaise with the motivational aspects of pre-war society. So, you know, pre-war and during the war, you had these certain motivations that people had and were supposed to have, and it was this malaise with that idea. They didn't care much for materialism, so within the story itself, instead of having an ambition and pushing toward a successful resolution to that ambition, or failing at it and becoming, you know, some kind of hero that way, they just kind of meander, and they don't take their job seriously so at one point in the book they end up on this naval ship and they got the station there, they were working for the station to get the station and running around doing kind of paperwork and this kind of thing to try to do it and they finally get stationed on it and this captain hits them with these kind of arbitrary procedural requirements that they apparently didn't meet, they didn't do right they were told by one of the seamen that they should do it one way or it was fine to do it this way and so they did it and then the captain's like, you can't do that, you have to get off my ship so there's this conflict and they end up just leaving the ship, but it's not like this big event that they are concerned about. It's not a big deal. It's annoyance, and they're not agonizing over their careers or wondering where they fit in the capitalist machinery. And then same thing with the sexual mores. It's it's not this kind of asceticism or puritanism. It's not this is an important thing who we end up sleeping with or whatever. It's that sexual revolution that would, 15 years later, where people are rebelling against these strictures on the way that sex was treated up to this point. So they would have girlfriends, but they would flirt with others, and it wasn't treated as some kind of a an important plot revelation or something like that, or an emotional upheaval or anything. It's just a bunch of things that happened. You know, they travel a bunch, they take drugs, and they're concerned about getting drugs uh, in various instances, and they get drunk, they do a lot of drinking. They'll have events where they're just, uh, Denison, he'll be sitting in the room somewhere, and then the crew will go up to the the roof, and they'll have their kind of respective events going on there where not a whole lot happens. And like I said, they don't even take any kind of deep philosophical ideas or deep truths around that very seriously but ultimately as you run through this and they go through all these events and they meet these people and uh, deal with girlfriends and all that sort of thing you have their friend Al who after an entire book he would like confide in the characters and, and the uh, Denison character and the Ryko character he would confide in them about how he felt about Phil and how he found him really attractive and didn't know how to deal with it and, and um, would try to make him notice him but didn't want to like manipulate him into it he wanted to really be loved by this person and ultimately it goes too far apparently for phil or so phil alleges and when they're alone somewhere phil ends up killing him and i think the the way that the killing happens in the book is that he hits him with a blunt object and pushes him off of a roof he like kicks him off of it the body the maybe lifeless but maybe having a little little bit left in him body that he pushes off the roof so then after having done this, he goes to both Denison and Rico and he talks to them about how what had happened and what he should do. Ryko hangs out with him. They go do a few things, but he suggests that he should leave and then ultimately doesn't leave, but they get arrested and and all this sort of stuff. Now, it could be thematically, it could be just another way to show that it wasn't about the societal norms. There's a further rejection of that, you know, just like with sexual mores or the use of drugs in general, eschewing the rules around that. It could have something to do with that thematically. But, of course, this is a real event. This is something that actually happened. So that's kind of the final unraveling of the book. And I think we can just go into the analysis here. (laughs) So this can be tedious. Uh, (laughs) There doesn't seem to be a point. There's no overarching idea or arc. It is when it comes to the canon, especially with On the Road. You know, that's the one that I love is On the Road. It has my favorite quote from literature. But when it comes to the canon, it's something that has to be stuck in there. It's something that made sense coming after World War II and the greatest generation and the kinds of meaning that the sons and daughters are going to find after the greatest generation did something so monumental. It's like they have to find some kind of meaning, they have to find their counterculture, so it makes sense to have this in the canon. Of course, this book isn't, but I mean, something like On the Road, but even this kind of cultural approach to what art is, it it makes sense, but it can be tedious because you don't have kind of a drive, you don't have a meaning at the end of it that you're chasing. A lot of times it's just the atmosphere, the atmosphere of what the people are and what they do, and that kind of recorded malaise of the era that would be fully expressed once you get to the 60s. Uh, it, could, it has some kind of importance, and you can, you can get that feeling from it, but sometimes it's just like, okay, they're doing this, and now they're doing that, and they're doing the other thing, and, and it's, it's like, okay, what, uh, what is the point of any of this? On top of that, you have two writers. You have two writers. You have Burroughs and Kerouac, who, two very important writers nowadays. And there's, there's not anything that comes from the alchemy of their trade-off here. You know, they're tagging each other in, but there's nothing special that comes from that. I generally liked Kerouac's chapters better, I think his writing style was more interesting to me just in general, but it didn't seem like some kind of synergy between the two, where they were playing off of what the other one did with the characters or anything like that, that's something you could see if he if had some other authors, I'm sure who took more care or had more of an interest in character and plot and structure and the thematics behind it, if they were playing off of each other and kind of one-upping each other and something like that, you could see this kind of really interesting synergy if you had two people writing a book. But in this, it just seemed like they were each doing their own thing and there wasn't much of a grand arc anyway, so what did it matter? I mean, there were the circumstances surrounding it, which kind of piqued my interest just in general, because it was based on the real-life murder. The real person was uh, Lucien Carr. He was the one who committed the murder. And Dave Kammerer was the victim. And there was some speculation about their relationship or what, uh, whether Carr was gay or not, and whether he kind of egged it on or appreciated it to some degree or something like that. But the real fight actually happened at a bar. It was a bar fight where Carr stabbed Cameron to death. Now, as far as I remember, it's actually Carr and some other onlookers suggested that it it was self-defense. But that's after the fact, and it turns out that Carr actually had a well-to-do family. So there could have been a, a, you know, a strong interest in, (laughs) in getting people who would at least say that. But it could have been kind of an interesting explosion of, of people trying to deal with those kinds of feelings in that era. You know, just like um, Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback Mountain is not an issue movie, and that's that's what people don't understand. And what they're trying to do now, where they just try to flip the gender in Ghostbusters or something like that, is that Brokeback Mountain is a movie that happened to address things that have to do with homosexuality. And so this kind of a circumstance could be, be a similar situation, where you have just these two characters who are trying to deal with this in an era that is is less accepting of it, and you have this expression of violence that's specifically related to that. Uh, so that, that circumstance interested me, at least. But the book itself, it was just vaulted for decades, and like I said, neither author were particularly fond of it or thought it was that great, but apparently, according to the person who eventually got the rights to it and published it, who knew the authors and knew Carr, too, Grauerholtz was the guy's name, he said that they, they tried, that um, Kerouac, especially tried over the course of over the years, tried to get it published, but there were fights about it over whether it could be published or not. I think Burroughs was resistant, and Carr especially didn't want it published until he died. Uh, so eventually Burroughs died, and Grauer- Grauerholtz got the rights to it, and then Carr died. And after all of them died, that's when, when the, the owner of it said, okay, I'm going to get this thing published. So he respected their wishes and then finally got it published in 2008, and that's, that's why we're able to read it now. Now, generally, if I have to say, uh, I don't think it's it's one of those books that, like I said, there wasn't synergy between the authors. So where something interesting is happening there when they very well could have been and there just wasn't enough meat in it. I wasn't interested in the circumstances and there was the imagery wasn't vivid enough to really stick with me. I mean, I've got images of them on rooftops occasionally uh, getting kicked off of the ship. You know, there are a couple of things that stick out, but not not a whole lot. So I don't think this is one that you really have to go out and, and try unless you're really trying to understand Burroughs or Kerouac and go through their their whole body of work to to get those characters down. But you definitely see the roots of what they would do later, So so there's that. But big picture, okay, big picture-wise, there's a big question about what effect art has on society. Art could merely reflect culture. It could anticipate where culture is going and just be kind of a lens- through which you can see the future of of where we're headed, or it could manufacture culture. So that's a very important question of what art does. Like I said, the B-generation culture, it was counterculture, challenging kind of the obsequious commitment to country that came with and after World War II. And at the tail end of the greatest generation and all of the, I don't know, accolades and and the like that went to that generation, you know, after that, you just wonder, it's so amazing to think about these kinds of things, these kind of broad historical ideas. And I'm thinking about this now, especially because we have uh, what's going on with woke, woke culture and and progressivism and, and all that and how... There were so many precursors that led up to where we are now, but when it comes to that, you have this situation where world events are creating this hero class, and then you have the following class that doesn't have the same option to be able to express themselves or have some kind of identity related to it. So you could see how some major event like that would lead to this, you know, this ebb led to that flow of the 60s and this counterculture that we're still feeling the effects of today. But it was likely the beginning, you know, of the, the long-term cultural decay that we are experiencing now. The things that have contributed to the destruction of the family, the family as a family unit, the deaths of despair that have been going up and up and up, the disinclination to have children in general or properly care for them after you do have them. I mean, all those things could be symptomatic of this kind of counterculture that pushed against the greatest generation after World War II. Of course, Nietzsche would say that it is specifically the relegation or the, the murder of God was the reason that a lot of these things happened. But, you know, that that could be just a further precursor to uh, this particular reaction of the Beat generation. So. There are obviously a confluence of so many mutually supportive factors. It's not just what was happening with World War II and then the Greatest Generation and the baby boom and and all this other stuff. It wasn't just that that was going on and the the prosperity that, that came after that. There were other things that were happening. One thing that Jordan Peterson, I saw him talking about recently, it was on an old video, but he was talking in the video about how the advent of birth control was such a monumental event in human history and that. That something that people don't realize is that when women are on birth control, they are more likely to find feminine men more attractive. When they're off birth control, they want more masculine men. When they're on birth control, they like more feminine men. So that is uh, something that over tens of millions of people over the course of a hundred years or something like that is likely to have a massive impact on the way that the culture functions, on on the way that society works, just in general. So. That's a big question, and that's something that likely is a further contributor to the way that the culture has gone ever since. Ultimately, it is a, a chicken or egg question. It is a chicken or egg question about whether this kind of art, the B generation, has an effect on the culture and pushes it in a direction or just reflects the culture as it stands or as it's going but can see it ahead of time. For our purposes, I mean, there's, a t- there's just a ton of momentum behind the decadence of this era, of the era that we're in right now. Every institution was behind it. You have the maturation of Western democracies, because it's no longer kind of a cool thing. You know, when it's a new fancy thing, capitalism and Western democracy, then it's something that everybody can get excited about. When it becomes more mature, then you want something else. You want to try something else just for the sake of doing it, even if it's working incredibly well. And then in addition to that, you have this vacuum of identity, which is one of the most important aspects of humanity just in general. Is How do we define ourselves? How can we define ourselves? What are the options out there for being able to do that? It was the American dream. It was, you know, supportive country. It was building a family in the picket fence and all that sort of thing. And being a good person, uh, being religious, all those things used to be fill that void of identity. And now we don't have that. It's not there. So you see what's happening is that people have to overcompensate with ridiculous things, saying this is a grave injustice when it's, uh, you know, something ludicrous, like some microaggression somewhere or something like that. And so they have to overcompensate and pretend that it's this grave injustice so that they give themselves hero status to be able to have something to fight against. But it's something that all of us have to struggle with. It's, it's not like it's, it's just their failing, uh, necessarily. It's something that we all have struggle with, is trying to figure out, okay, what is going to define me in the short term? What's going to define me in the long term? What are the things that are going to, going to be meaningful enough to get me motivated to do something important? So when it comes to art in general, I used to treat it as a closed universe. I think I mentioned this in a recent episode, and I keep (laughs) going back and forth. Obviously, it's much more complex than one or the other, but I used to treat it as a closed universe. It's just, it's its own thing. You judge it on its merits, and you leave it there. It's a value in itself to have that art. But then I was thinking more that so much of art is built and the value of it is built on the archetypes that are already built into who we are. And there are things that kind of grease the wheels to send us in the right directions. So it's important to have art to give us ideas about what we should be doing and should not be doing. And one or the other might be a better cultural practice, you know, just erring on one side versus the other. You know, you could see how it might be better to have this kind of crucible of of ideas where you get to explore anything that you can think of. And that's what art is. You get to explore anything. You can be whatever you want to be. You can, you can try to find out what it would be like to be, you know, a 19th century murderer of prostitutes. You're going to try to figure that out without having to go out and do that. And that could be a very important way that we try to understand different ideas and try to figure out different modes of behavior and see if that's the right one to do or not. Or on the other hand, it might be much more important to have works of art that do try to send us in one direction versus another and do try to say, no, you should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that as opposed to so that it's not a closed universe, that it should be reaching its tentacles out into the way society functions and human psychology and all that sort of thing to get us heading in one direction or another. And there are reasonable arguments on either side. The thing is that art can communicate archetypal truths more effectively than a discussion or a nonfiction book. Like a discussion or nonfiction book, even if you're incredibly knowledgeable and you put all the citations in there and you have a great arguments well written, all those sorts of things, it's not necessarily the case that people are going to be able to pick up that much information at once. Whereas when you have archetypes that you're building on top of each other, Those are things that people are going to be able to pick up more effectively and hold with them more. You know, it's the storytelling aspect of, say, a case or something like that that is going to stick with a juror more effectively than just simply pointing out something that's empirically true. So who knows? Uh, when it comes to art, it might be a more important source of culture rather than just a reflection of it, but that's something that we really have to figure out, and <laughs> we really have to come to some kind of terms with that. It's going to be a moving target like everything else with humans because we can't just have it simple, but it is something to take into consideration when you're, when you're thinking about writing that novel or <laughs> painting that painting or you're just criticizing some work of art. It's like, what is it actually doing? What should it be doing? Anyway, so that was Coffee House. Like I said, I got a book coming out in November. I will hope. Uh, I think we only reached, what did we reach on the, it was like number 600 or something on the last one on the, on like just the comparative literature category. I hope it was fun. I just, I have so much fun re- writing these things. And I think I'm just going to do an audiobook too because I think it's much easier. But so I think I'm going to do that and see if that's uh, a little easier for people to imbibe in our very, very busy lives. And then we'll see how it goes from there. But uh, this is Coffeehouse. I greatly appreciate you listening. I hope all is well. And I will see you on the next one. All right, Bye.